0: hello there and welcome 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 i'm sarah from sarah Furuya coaching and this is the legends podcast i believe there are many many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and i want to tell them and share them these legends are a collection of people who i have found during my 20 years in tokyo and before All of them are brilliant people, and when I became bored with reading another billionaire's biography, I thought, I want to tell the stories of the people who I meet who are absolutely fascinating, but you won't see on your regular podcast interview. They have overcome obstacles, both systemic and internal. And we cover all kinds of things from creativity, grief, racism, business, disaster, loss, trolling, infertility, farming, eating disorder, ecofeminism, and more. We have elite athlete, people who live on Zen temples in remote parts of Japan, BBC newscaster to Taekwondo champion. Please enjoy these amazing stories from what they've overcome, from what they've built, from what they've created, from the way that they talk. I'm just delighted thinking about it. So please get stuck in and enjoy this next legend. Hello, 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 and welcome to this, the Legends podcast. It is February and um, we are in Almost one year of the coronavirus um, debacle that's happened over the unfolded in front of us over the last year. Um, This interview will air probably in March, I think, or maybe late February. I think late February. And um, I'm talking today to Martine Cotton. Hi, Martine. Hi, Sigzy, Zera. You call me what you want. that's my nickname, Sixie. nobody's mentioned that before, how brilliant. <laughs> it's followed me around the world over the last four, 50 years, almost 50 years now. So um, let's get into it. Um, so before I give Martine her introduction, um, and you know, I believe there are so many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and wait till you hear Martine's, just amazing. Um, I just want to give throughout a few fun facts about Martine. So, first of all, um, Martine actually photographed my Tokyo wedding, and it was the first ever wedding she'd photographed. she just started kind of tentatively telling people she was a photographer, and I was like, I will hire you. (laughs) So that's fun fact number one. And fun fact number two is (laughs) a few years ago, we celebrated one of Martine's big birthdays in New Zealand together, and we had a banquet in (laughs) Hobbiton. (laughs) The actual place where the Lord of the Rings and the Hobbit was filmed and we had so much fun, it was crazy wasn't it? It was amazing. Yeah it was amazing. So as you can see Martine and I have known each other for a long time but even so I would still find her story really really fascinating for reasons that will become apparent. Um, So I'm going to give you your kind of formal rock star introduction now Martine. (laughs) (laughs) So Martine describes herself as something of a Jill of all trades or many trades um, and perhaps you could call her a multi-potentialite. She's forged out career stints in the music industry as a venue manager, band manager, major and small festival and event producer, a booking agent, a tour manager, marketing and social media director graphic artist, web builder, and music industry educator. (laughs) Outside of the music world, she's worked as a professional photographer, newspapers, weddings, portraits, events, and live music, a writer, a cook, a horse and cart driver. (laughs) Really? Yeah. Really? An English teacher, a blogger, and a university tutor in 2019. um, Getting itchy feet and a five-year stint running her own online music industry professional development education platform. Goodness me, I should have done warm-ups before this. (laughs) She started studying a Bachelor of Health Science degree at the University of Queensland. Now this is the thing that really really piqued my interest to talk to you Martine because of this incredible U-turn in your career Um, and so she's majoring in nutrition and public health and now uh, on the best side of 50 I'm taking the best side of 50 she has for the first time settled quite comfortably in the same house and city for over six years and absolutely loving being in immersed in study so that is quite a convoluted not convoluted <laughs> but like a an amazing twisty turny um uh story there and I absolutely love it and that's not even starting with your, with, with your childhood, what happened before all of this. So um, let's get into it, Martine. So why don't you tell us about your ancestry, your childhood and your upbringing? Right. Um, well, I was born in Brisbane,
1: uh, in Queensland, to uh, a quite uh, well-traveled, um, independent, fiery young woman from a feminist family. And she met a, uh, I'm gonna call him a cowboy for want of a better word. He was a a long multi-generational cattle farm, um, owner and worker. So our whole, on dad's side, the Cotton family is quite famous for cattle ownership and big land. Um, And he was a drover and he was, uh, he had gone to boarding school, he left school, and went out to work on the land for um, for years and he, he met mum, it's such a lovely story. He met mum at, a, um, at the Surf's Paradise Beer Garden and uh, I, I did find out recently that they'd actually met a few times before that, but the time that they re-met after mum came back from living overseas for six years, um, he basically asked her out on a date and they went on three dates and he drove down to Sydney to meet her and he asked her to marry him and she said, yes, like that. So it was definitely a true love story. And I, and I love that. Um, we, uh, we started, they decided to go and live in New Guinea. Uh, the opportunities at that time were big. So uh, while mum stayed in, in Brisbane while she was pregnant with me, dad went up to New Guinea and set up a house in Rabaul in um, Bougainville. And he got a job with Hastings Deering As a um, the the head guy on a road building um, contract, and um, yeah, so I was two weeks old and on a plane to New Guinea, and my poor (laughs) mum, two weeks old. old, um, The the picture is is of me sitting on my dad's lap on a pillow with the um, (laughs) the seat belts. Back in those days, there were seat belts that went this way or at least on that plane they were. And (laughs) so he had the seatbelt and he was holding me tightly and and mum was asleep. Um, And yeah, so...
0: hey, Martine, sorry, deep bow to your mum because that's two weeks postpartum flying off, two week old. That's like, (laughs) I mean, amazing about you, but what? (laughs) Well, it gets better because we we went to settle in New Guinea uh,
1: and there was, you know, we were... I had one of a handful of, of um, you know, European or Western families living in um, the town Rabaul. And um, we ended up getting um, a family to move in with us, um, Joseph and Katarina and their three kids were locals. Um, and they basically, we, we moved into a place that had two living arrangements. So we lived in one house and they lived in the other. And basically they helped bring me up, uh, me and my brother who came along three years later. Um, and we've got so many photos from that time of me just hanging out with them. <laughs> they, they, they were, we, they were. I was with them all the time. I grew up with them, with those three kids and and Joseph and Katerina. Um, anyway, yeah. So mum was pretty much bringing me up on her own. Dad had to go off on long contracts to go and build roads out in the in the jungles, so and we'd sometimes go with them and live in the jungles, like in tents. And um, I have a really vivid memory. I was still very young. So maybe four um, of us crossing, uh, we were camping somewhere and we got word of, uh, there was some rain up the mountains and we knew that the river was gonna flood and it was gonna chop us off from, um, you know, civilization. And it might've been a quite a long period. So what they ended up doing, uh, they dropped, they bulldozed a whole lot of trees down and cut them up, which is terrible, (laughs) and um, built a sort of a bridge across a flat part of the river. And um, the bulldozer pulled the land cruiser with mum and me and my brother and all of the, you know, our camping gear across the river um, and into safety. But it was really scary. The the water was rising literally a, a foot An hour um, and flying really fast. So that was quite, and we we did actually get dragged down the river and the the bulldozer had to, you know, pull us through. Um, Everyone was very nervous, but it was very exciting. That was a very vivid memory. Um, You know, then we came back to Australia. uh, There was lots of activity around independence and. We just knew things were gonna change a lot in New Guinea. My parents were part of like, they were the older generation. They still had a pretty, uh, dad came from a very racist family, uh, very racist. Mum was far more um, open-minded and she was actually a teacher there. She was teaching with the tribes there, Um, but we knew it was gonna change everything when independence came. So we came back to Australia and I started school And um, yeah, so I went to school here in Brisbane. Um, Apparently we were little ferals. Um, (laughs) At the time that we moved, uh, I used to, my brother and I both used to shimmy up coconut trees to get coconuts and we refused to wear clothes. And the only things we ate were bananas and and, uh, tinned sheep's brains. Um, (laughs) And yeah. Uh, We'd never seen the television, Uh, the first time we saw a television, it was a football game playing and we were running around the room behind the TV to see where the football players were. We couldn't understand it. Um, Anyway, we bought a house, I went to primary school and then I went to high school, I went to a boarding school. Uh, because my parents wanted to move up the coast away from Brisbane. So I went to the school that my mum went to. It was a, a private school run by Anglican nuns. And um, it was pretty horrible. And um, I'm, uh, I have a theory that I have a thing called um, attachment disruption disorder because of my time at university, at, at, um, sorry, at boarding school. Um, and I often say that it took me five years of uni straight after five years of boarding school to kind of heal from a lot of the the, the trauma of boarding school and living, being surrounded by my peers, you know, teenage girls, twenty four seven, no escape, um, bullies, um, no freedom,
0: uh, no privacy, um, etc
1: anyway.
0: Mm-hmm. No, that's really interesting, Martina, and I'll come back to that, but I'm interested to know a bit more about your mum and dad, actually, because um, they sounded like a real blast, and I know that you, you know, you you said here your dad came from a very racist family, and your mum came from a more kind of feminist family, and she was a little bit more open-minded, and he was, he he, he was as he was, and so on, and uh, but. I also know that he they were uh, like quite a blast as a couple weren't they I mean and I know you adored them tell me a bit more about them uh they were so much fun um I think I
1: think New Guinea probably really set them up um to be the party animals that they became because the expats that were living there at the time were so uh stranded it was quite a I shouldn't say stranded but it was a real, because it was a real outpost, Um, so drinking was prolific, Uh, that we would all go to each other's houses, be it the houses in town or out on plantations, and we just, they would just drink and party, and um, some of the photos from that time are uh, ridiculous. Um, it certainly set them up as lifetime um, you know, functioning alcoholics. They, they, from then right through till the time they died, they uh, drank like a bottle of rum between them like a night or maybe over two nights and beer and, and Coke with the rum. Um, and, yeah, so they were a lot of uh, the life of the party, everywhere they went, especially mum, she loved talking to people. Um, often I'd bring friends home when I was at university and she'd sit up talking to them, drinking with them till four o'clock in the morning and I would have gone to bed hours before because I'd heard all the stories a million times before. And <laughs> my, my friends all at daughter, she was gorgeous. They were, they were both gorgeous.
0: Um, yeah. It's, uh, this is a just a truly curious question, because I know that you have quite a social activist soul now. And when you look back on that, what's your, what's your feelings about you mean, you said like, Oh, my God, we pulled the forest down to rescue us or like, you know, my or, or that came from this kind of thing, or the kind of, you know, the plantations and stuff, and things like that. I'm just truly interested to know, through your social activist eye there, what's your how? That's it. That's the question. <laughs>
1: Well, you know, obviously it was a different generation and they didn't know any better. They didn't know any other way. Um, It's interesting because I see photos of my dad's family, um, like the old family albums, and I see these, you know, cattle stations out west of Queensland um, and there's a lot of Indigenous First Nations people in there, in these photos, you know, in their white dresses and shirts and they're intermingled with the families of the white fellas um, and certainly a part of that 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 thread um so I know that they had value to my father's family and there was certainly a sort of a um strange relationship there where I mean they thought they were doing the right thing by giving them, you know, by bringing them in and, uh, you know, feeding them, but they couldn't see that what they were doing was actually modern day slavery. And um, and taking these people off their land, away from their families and their communities was destroying the fabric of Aboriginal society. And um, yeah, it's interesting. I've had, you know, my uncle, my the remaining uncle that's, that is still alive on my dad's side, um, he and I have a lot of fights about, well, we, we have strong disagreements about uh, a lot of that stuff. And I'm actually, uh, we've actually come to a point where we've had to say, we agree to disagree and we're never talking politics or racism or social justice matters ever again, because he takes it really seriously and I take it really seriously. And um, we will never overcome those differences um, if we dwell on them. And I adore him and he adores me. so. We just, you know, we just let those differences exist.
0: Um, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah. Of
1: life in
0: relationships. yeah it's, it, it's tricky, but I think it's a worth, it's a question worth answering, especially, you know, against the backdrop of the last few years as well, when so much stuff has come up to the surface about this kind of thing, like for, for us, let me say yeah, for us. Yes, yes, <laughs> yeah. um, yeah. But n- obviously not for the people who are on the receiving end of it. But I just thought it's really interesting and without any accusation or anything like that, just simple curiosity of where where that conversation went there. Because <laughs> I saw, if you're listening to this, you wouldn't have seen Martine's face when you, she said like, and so we chopped loads of trees down and her face looked like, oh, just so sad. Because you, you, know, you have this kind of very conscious way of living I think would be a, a conscious way of living I think would be a good way to put how you live your life would that be fair yeah definitely in Japan we call it motainai, uh, in, in it's kind of like the not wasteful way of living and uh in, yeah would that be fair Marty yep yep absolutely cool. so um yeah so your mum and dad were like the life and soul of the party and they loved to drink and throw parties and they were kind of this kind of people people satellited around um yes. and they lived fully like a really full life is that right absolutely <laughs> both both their funerals had hundreds of people oh. and a lot of laughter oh oh they sound great i would have loved to have met them myself but unfortunately mm. i they have loved you <laughs> <laughs> what are you trying to say <laughs> 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 yeah so yeah so um so let's so when you were talking about like going on to boarding school then so this is quite normal for people so at that let me just get the geography right so you were in Brisbane your mum and dad wanted to move north is that right
1: Yeah. So but only only an hour
0: and a half s drive north
1: so to um Maloolaba, which is Maloolaba okay yeah, seaside beautiful town so I mean mum had spent a lot of time living there on and off as a child and both families went there for holidays it's a popular holiday destination for Brisbane people.
0: Okay all right and so a lot of people who live in these kind of more remote areas tend to tend, tend to have their kids go to boarding school is that right? Yeah. Okay so you said that attachment disruption disorder. It explains everything. (laughs) It's
1: only only a new thing. I've just sort of recently discovered it. Um, but it explains everything. Like, Oh my God, it's me. Yeah. Um, it's basically where you, um, you're extreme high functioning or high, um, high level independence.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, to a fault. Okay. Um, meaning that the whole, um, you know, uh, that's why I've never had a very long relationship and never married. I just can't stand the, that level of, I um, don't want to say compromise, but just, you know, impedance. I, I don't want to be, I don't want to have to change what I want to do.
0: like freedom. For freedom. someone else. Freedom. Yeah. Yeah, I like my freedom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. that's all it is.
0: Freedom um, independence. Autonomy. Yeah.
1: Yeah, but it's 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 you know that's problematic as well in itself. So it's quite bad. Um, so that and then you know um, fierce ambition, um, always wanting to be the best at everything uh, to a fault, and driving yourself endlessly um, till till there's um, you know not a lot left. You give everything to the... Yeah, yeah. the the project that you're on, which is something I've always done and you know, almost killed myself. And certainly now that I'm getting older, I'm recognizing the dangers of that and pulling back. And I'm a lot gentler on myself and I, I do not, act, the, the realities of just, you know, just doing a job and getting it done well, it doesn't have to be excellent. It doesn't <laughs> have to be the best that anyone's ever seen. So um, yeah, and it's really interesting this whole, um, it's boarding school syndrome and if you do a search you'll see that um most of the uk ruling class the sort of politicians all went to boarding school and they're all a little bit you know (laughs) a lot of them went a lot earlier than i did like i only started in grade a so so i was what 13 but for a lot of in the uk it's a lot more common to send kids as young as five to boarding school and that's really quite disruptive to, you know, family ties and fears of abandonment and all that stuff.
0: Um, so, yeah,
1: listeners should, should Google it.
0: Boarding school syndrome is fascinating. <laughs> that is really, really fascinating. What do you think of the payoffs of that? though? What do you think it's given you as well? Because I know you to have a capacity for great joy, great fun, great organisation. Oh, and P.S., that works really well for me. We did a road trip together and I was like, Um, do you want to like do all the organizing and you were like I've got a spreadsheet yes and I was like Good, no problem (laughs) we got we hired a car I was like do you want me to put my license on there as well so we could share the driving and you went no I can't stand (laughs) stand (laughs) having somebody else on these roads they're really hard and I was like not a problem not a problem <laughs> like for me i'm in seventh heaven because i i like to i like a i like a nice quick decision you know what i mean and i, and, and I also understand that lots of different people have different um how can i say it? people have different values around the area or different wishes and needs and mm. i think that like um, some people want it to be fair so if i just sat back going no problem you do all the driving they'd be very angry but actually for you that was really useful because it meant your stress levels were down or your anxiety level yes. managed or, yeah like, you know, I've got a spreadsheet, so I was like, okay, you've got it covered. <laughs> do I need to do anything to the spreadsheet? No? Okay, good. <laughs> Just pay me? Okay. <laughs> I mean, pay you for all the, like, accommodation we, we got and everything yeah. like that. So, yeah, yeah it, was, it was a nice balance, really. <laughs> well, it's the
1: only way to manage that many people, you
0: know? like Absolutely. Over that three-week period,
1: we had people coming and going from the country and, you know, like, oh, my God, how, how,
0: how are we going to make this happen? so that spreadsheet is the single oh, really. thing that it was you really kept exactly it going. <laughs> but yeah i just was taking the temperature. and it makes sense now like against the backdrop of what you've just said as well it makes perfect sense that like you would uh, you would want to kind of have that control there and it makes perfect sense like for me as as coach knowing that there are lots of different ways that people like to do things to just take the temperature and then kind of adjust my own expectations around that <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah funny it was, it
1: was but, that,
0: but that's the thing though isn't it Martine I mean pe- the, the 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 these um well you you know you call it a dis- disorder these kinds of attachment styles or anything that the shapes us when we're younger, they have value as well as disruption later in life as well. So this allows you to do all these incredible things in the world as well to nth degree. And it makes you Martine as well. And it makes you highly respected, highly trusted, all that good stuff too, I think. Um, so I, I'm not trying to like um, uh, spiritually bypass or like toxic positivity here. It's just worth noting that I think.
1: Yeah, and I do agree, I think, um, I think, my fear of being uh, trapped again is, has absolutely driven that diversity in my choices. Uh-huh. Um, having to constantly change things up. I get bored very quickly um, and I actually feel physically ill if I, uh,
0: if I feel trapped. Right. It's like somebody, stand, you, were, you, were, you were pointing to your chest there. Is it like somebody's kind of standing on your chest or something? Yes.
1: Ooh. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I can't, I can't um, once I've reached the end of the challenge and the learning from a situation and I'm bored. Um, yeah. I can't do it anymore and I have to change. And, and if I'm really trapped into that particular position or situation um, I start to feel really ill. It's, it's a it's full on it's physical and that's why I, yeah it's physical and that's why I have to constantly change uh my path and my location in fact you know it's bizarre I've been in this house now for six years um it's, it's the longest I've ever lived anyway e- even with my family
0: yeah and i I actually love it <laughs> <laughs> Well, you, I'm, you I'm obviously to, from, you're cycling in and out of there as well don't you yeah yes yeah flatmates um come and go um and they're all
1: lovely and it's they all bring something different to the house and
0: um yeah
1: yeah I and mean, you know we build lovely family environment and yeah.
0: it's very supportive and nurturing i think also as we get older and i've noticed this especially around benchmark birthdays 30 40 50 mm-hmm. you just kind of go you know what i think i am just let go of a little bit of this now. <laughs> the earlier yeah. the better because otherwise you yeah years just protecting a a, a child basically but also that has a that has its value too and i think that one of the lovely things about this story martina one of the encouraging things about this story is that those things can can sit together it's not either or it's not that you're dysfunctional or that you're um um you're having a terrible life you're having a rich and full life while at the same time having this you know this boarding school syndrome as you called it uh you know um as well and then as we get a bit older we start to let go let go let go personally i just want to enjoy my days i want to enjoy my days without too much anxiety yeah i think once you hit
1: yeah 40 50 um that is absolutely a natural transition and i see it with all my friends my age um we we really love the little things, yeah. if we come to a realization that it is the little things that, that you know, a beautiful meal with friends or, a, you know, I posted on Instagram yesterday, uh, I spilled some water and it just exploded in this really weird pattern, like just this bunch of dots around the outside and uh, it was beautiful. And I took a photo of it cause I just, I was shocked. It was really unusual pattern and um, yeah. And that brought me joy. <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I, oh, uh, I, I had a good laugh about it. <laughs> absolutely the same. And ever since we visited you in uh, Port Douglas? Port, Port Douglas, yeah. In Port Douglas, which is in far North Queensland. And you had your desk set up to, to look out onto that lovely little kind of tiny tropical garden you had there. I, I now have my desk set up to look out onto the garden and uh, not onto the garden, out into the sky and out into the hills of Zushi. And last, in my last house, I had my desk set up to look out and Kesko was always like, he, we always say like, to be like Martin's desk set up you had there as well. I think that's really important, those little things that make you feel joy every single day. Yes. Um, when you finished boarding school then, were you like, yes! And then did you go directly to university or did you have a gap year directly? No.
1: straight to <laughs> uni-
0: university then, what were you interested in and what did you study at university? Um, I studied filmmaking. Well, it was a Bachelor of, bachelor of Arts oh, majoring you did in.
1: Um, I'd always, uh, even at school, I did a lot of theatre, drama. Um, I performed in a lot of plays, um, and my strengths were English and history and speech and drama. Um, and I loved filmmaking and, you know, uh, yeah, I don't know, I just love that stuff. So, Bachelor of Communication, majoring in film and media studies. So, um, and that's where I met. I mean, it was absolutely life changing. And so that's that five years was the sort of the anchor to everything that follows. Yeah. Um, it was mind blowing. It was where I, you know, fell in love and, you know, met boys. And um, within the first year, I was out, you know, clubbing all night and partying. I fell in with a crowd of musicians and people who loved music. And, um, you know, and I loved music, so we just bonded over going to live shows and dancing all night and I remember the first time I ever came out of a club and it was dawn (laughs) and, you know, I would have been, oh, and I, because of the way the schooling, my birthday worked in the schooling um, schedule, I was actually 17 for my first year of uni. So um, I I was living on campus at the time for, for the first six months and um, yeah, so I was 17, obviously sneaking into clubs and um, coming out of clubs and seeing the sun coming up. And um, yeah, my best friends were there um, to this day. Um, we have so many stories from that time. And of course the work that we were doing too was really important, the actual, the, the, we, we were making films. Uh, we were watching films Like we had to watch it was part of our election material was that, you know, we'd have a lecture and then we'd go in and watch a movie for two hours and then have a follow-up lecture and a two and we'd all discuss and, you know, it was Jean-Luc Godard and, you know, all the French cinema and the Russian cinema and, you know, Metropolis and um, all that. And then script writing. Um, and I think that really developed my, my writing skills. Mm-hmm. Um, I always loved writing. I used to write little mills and booze stories at boarding school for my friends and I, using Duran Duran or Adam and the Ants as the leading men. (laughs) And, um, yeah, just, yeah, and that's also where I fell into event management because a lot of my friends were a little bit useless and I was, I just have a natural knack for, you know, infrastructure and logistics. I just understand it. Um, so I started helping organize shows for my friends, um, gigs, and I got involved with student union and we were putting on lots of shows. Um, I was looking after like a lot of the entertainment and then I got the job as the O-week director in the year. So I finished my degree in 89. I had a little break in there when I lived in North Queensland for a little while. Oh, after a massive fight with my father and we didn't talk for two years. That's another story wow um, yeah and Emily's yeah. <laughs> always in there aren't they <laughs> <laughs> yeah so i took six months off uni and lived in north queensland came back finished the degree um and went straight on to organize the orientation week for the, the following year um and it was massive and it was considered you know um we had the most money that we ever had uh, just through extensive fundraising and um we had this big international band playing and a bunch of local bands and film nights and market days and um, oh my god I loved it and that was the beginning of my relationship with event management and um, you know venues venue management
0: Um, yeah I loved it and that was uni (laughs) that was uni and then when you left uni then you you then went back into event management so one of the things I really really know about you is that you love music like love music it's playing all the time it's really interesting I just have like images of us in the car with the little speaker hanging up there listening to Nick Cave and all these other things. <laughs> like and you used to go and see a lot of live bands and things as well here in Japan didn't you yeah so then what happens after you graduate university do you go into a job or do you kind of float a bit
1: no, well, I I took a break. Um, I'd been, you know, I, I use this word loosely, but I'd been institutionalised for you know boarding school and then yeah. university. Yeah. Um, I just wanted to have a bit of a gap year. So yeah. I went to live in Cairns um, and I was, um, by that time, my friend Jackie was making shoes, uh, Pendragon shoes, and I set up a market stall up there for... Pendragon shoes. Um, so I sold them. Uh, there was two big markets a week and I just lived in a house in the rainforest, this beautiful house and lots of hippies. Um, you know, we did all of the, you know, nude swimming, we'd go to water holes and everyone would strip off and we'd eat papayas and watermelons and pick coconuts off the trees and crack them open. And it was an idyllic existence. Um, I had various jobs, um, I was working as a cook at the Jabbagai dance theater for a while, horse and cart driver. So (laughs) my town, Kuranda was a really busy tourist town. And um, I met a woman called Karen who um, needed someone to help her with her two Clydesdales and the big trailer um, for tourists to take them from the train station, which was a a tourist um, rail trip up the mountain and then over to the markets. So it was just a 10 minute trip, but people loved it, um, especially the Japanese. Mm -hmm. And we would just meet them at the station and walk trot up the street and everyone would take photographs of us. And we dressed with the the Kubras and the white hats and the Jodhpurs and riding boots. And and I learned how to harness Clydesdales Um, and yeah, worked closely with Clydesdales.
0: You know how to (laughs) harness a shire horse, what?
1: Yeah, and, you know, I, I'd help with the shoeing. Like They had to be re-shoed constantly because they were on concrete um, yeah. or bitumen. Um, yeah, that was lovely. They were, they were beautiful years, but I got really bored. And while I was there, um, my friends from Brisbane formed a band that were doing quite well and they wanted to come up to, to North Queensland for an adventure. And I basically helped arrange their tour. Booked them some shows and they had a great time and so this actually happened two or three times and the shows got bigger and bigger and they were actually massively popular like they were selling out the clubs up there um and i decided i'd have enough had enough of north queensland and so i moved back down to brisbane um to start life that i was up there for quite longer than i expected i, I was probably about three years um, and then I had woke up one morning and panicked and thought my life was flashing me by and I was you know, floating around the rain forest lake and you know, missing all of these exciting things that were happening in the city. So yeah, I went down to the city, Brisbane, um, and the band, they were called the Tooth Fairies, but spelt A-E, not A-I.
0: Lovely.
1: Um, they asked me to manage them and I said, okay not really thinking about what I was getting into. Um, and they ended up being massively successful. We toured all over Australia. Um, and they were sort of a um, folk punk band. So they were all covered in tattoos and had wild hair and dreadlocks. and um, But their music was really infectious and fun. So they were a huge festival band. So we toured all the festivals.
0: Um, so is that a band that like Aussies wouldn't know? The two
1: thirties. Well, if they were of a certain era and they went to festivals at that time, yes, Yes. I would know them.
0: Yeah, Yeah. Yeah. same with Pen Dragon Shoes because, like, when when we went away for your fiftieth birthday, like somebody was like looking at my photographs and went, "Wait, do you know the people who run Pen Dragon Shoes?" And I was like, "Yeah, I didn't know they
1: were." They're a global brand. Yeah, (laughs) they're
0: like I love them. (laughs) It's like, oh, okay, yeah. My oh, most famous cobblers, <laughs> not cobblers, <laughs> shoemakers, I should say. Oh yeah. no, they call themselves cobblers. No. okay. Uh, <laughs> 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 yeah, amazing. So, so tell me. So, when did this come to an end? The tooth fairies. Then, oh, tell me. Just tell me a little bit more about what's it like managing a band. Is it? Is it? Is it fun? Is it a nightmare? Is it a combination of both? How do you get them to be so big? What was that? What was that like? Uh, A combination of both, good
1: and bad. I went on to manage a bunch of other bands after that and during that as well. So I actually started a bit of a management stable and I was looking after about four or five bands. Yeah. um, Which in retrospect was ridiculous because it's such a big job. Um, So basically, yeah, you are looking after their business career um, and the irony was that I had so little business experience, I really didn't know what I was doing. I had to get help all the time working out how to do a, you know, basic, um you know do a tax return and um Ugh. understanding contracts and things I never really uh understood them um and we were definitely coming at it from very underground punk DIY ethic. so um that was problematic because you know in the music industry if you want to do well you kind of start to you need to embrace that side yeah things,
0: subvert from within
1: <laughs> yeah, so that was challenging. Um, I remain very close to all those boys, but um, there was a long time where I just couldn't talk to them after a while. Yeah. I just couldn't be around them. I mean, there was a lot of, uh, I was kind of the mother as well, um, which is a, a role that a lot of young, unexperienced people, young managers take on. They yeah. they they take on the the emotional support role as well as the business support and that's a really dangerous place to be especially if you've got musicians who are already very highly um, emotional and uh, often a bit traumatized or um, with a whole range of yeah, they're carrying
0: a lot of shit and baggage with them, right? And then you are totally unqualified as a young woman who's managing and trying to work your own shit out at the same time. Yeah. And yeah, a, a lot capacity. of drug problems. It's a lot. Um, yeah. 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 So um and you were I, so I, capable. <laughs> yeah,
1: well, I tried so hard and I, I, burned, out. I sure. burned out. I absolutely I was yeah. so over it. So um yeah we stopped working together but around that time that didn't really matter because I'd started working at this venue called the zoo um a live music venue um here in Brisbane and um I just started on the bar but you know obviously ended up in the office um and ended up the owners one of the owners wanted to become a silent partner so she took off and the other owner wanted to go and work at a festival full-time um big festival called the Librid Festival which was a huge festival here in Brisbane um, so I took on the role as you know the manager and booker of that venue for um, quite a few years four or five years um, which was wow. absolutely a magical
0: time. Was I- it a magical time so what was magical about that time as well because I can imagine like running a venue and uh, must have been quite wild as well but still like because and know yeah, very wild other stories well that time that time was such a unique time in history for, for our kind of what you said, that kind of like folk punk underground kind of um, subversive kind of just so much fun at the same time. No phones, how we met anybody. I've no idea. Landlines only, you know, and then. and (laughs) And also let me tell you, phone bills were expensive too. So you weren't on the phone all the time. And then like, and and also the music that was coming up. And then you'd all get together and nobody's holding a phone up to take photo. You're, you're so very present with the people with you in, in there and the people there. I've been thinking about this a lot recently. There's an Oasis um uh documentary. I don't know if you've seen it on Netflix. It's quite it's quite good actually, uh Martin. Oh, and at the end, um uh, Noel Gallagher says, you know, he goes, you're never going to get another time in history like this. That and he talks about, I think it's Nebworth, where they highlight they where I've got goosebumps thinking about this, where they I didn't go and see them, but like where they headlined. And he said, That was the last good gig ever. He goes, Because the next year everybody they, they got cameras on phones. And so then that was it. Nobody that was the last time people were actually watching, then going out and buying the music in shops where you'd meet other people who were enthusiastic and stuff like that. Now, you know. There's glory days for now as well. I love what's happening now. I love technology. It allows us to do this, but I also am so appreciative of that time. I used to go to a very, very um, iconic club in Liverpool called Planet X Um, and anyway, and I just like, I just love thinking about that time so much, not in a sentimental way. Well, it's a little bit sentimental and not in a way where I want to go back and not in a way where I get, just in a way that I delight over it. and Like when you remember a really good meal, (laughs) or really good fun, you know, like Hobbiton or something, (laughs) you know, just wow, what a time to be alive.
1: (laughs) It was a magical time to be alive. I mean, for me it was the sense of community because our scene was really quite neat and Brisbane at that time was really exploding with the best bands in Australia. So we had Regurgitator and Powderfinger and Custard and Resin Dogs and Tooth Fairies and um, uh, Scream Feeder and... um, got so many so many bands that um, were big names. Uh, I mean Powderfinger went on to play stadiums. It was massive. And and you know they used to work at the zoo. The guitarist used to actually be the be behind the bar at the zoo, or the dishy even. Um, violent Soho, etc. Um yeah, but just really strong music scene. Um, and yeah, people absolutely lived and breathed music. Um, they, um, I mean, the stories I could tell and, and the touring musicians could really feel it. Like they'd come in and they knew that they were surrounded by music lovers and they, you know, I'd have, I remember one, one of my birthdays, uh, Ed Harcourt, who was a musician from the UK, came and played. Um, and he, he heard from the staff that it was my birthday. And after we closed the doors, he came out and said, "Oh, so I hear it's a birthday. I'm not doing a very good British accent. No, that,
0: that was bad.
1: <laughs> Sorry.
0: It's a mix of Indian it was, and It was, it was lovely to
1: <laughs> Anyway, um, and <laughs> we, we got a bottle of TQ hot tequila and all the staff and I, and we went up to the stage and he just gave us a private concert with his piano. Sang me happy birthday, and then he sang a couple of other songs and chucked my name into these songs just to, and you know, God, that was so special. Uh, Yeah. And a million million stories like that. You know, I could tell you stories about Nick Kane and Mogwai and Gwen Stefani and, you know, you name it, Danny Warhol's hilarious, (laughs) hilarious stories. Yeah, and so much fun and, yeah. Anyway, that all had to come to an end. I got, um, I ended up moving on from that role um, into uh, a booking agency. I set up my own booking agency with some friends, but that only lasted about 10 months when we realized that there's just not enough work to support three people's career own, um, income. So they decided to relocate. Um, so one moved to Melbourne, one moved to Sydney, and I uh, kept the business um, and all, all with very goodwill and we're, they're still my dearest friends. Um, and yeah, so for three years, I ran uh, my own little sort of music industry consultancy where I was working as a promoter, on the ground promoter for uh, international and national um, promoters, booking agents. So what they would do there is, you know, they the the touring company would book a band, let's say Magnetic Fields, and then would bring me and I'd be the Brisbane rep for that show. So I would book the show, I'd book the accommodation and the transport, the rider, um, pick them up at the airport, take them to the hotel, take them to the sound check, make sure the show ran properly um, and then get them back to the hotel and back to the airport the next day um, and report and do the money as well. Cause of course, back then it was all cash. You know, you'd sit at the, at the table and you'd count out like sticky, wet, gross notes. And that was the payment. Ugh. Um, so I'd leave the venue with like thousands of dollars and, and have to be really discreet and pretend <laughs> I was just another drunk girl walking to her car. <laughs> Weird, crazy yeah. times.
0: Oh my God, I really, um, like, going back to my, um, I, you know, I'd forgotten about this, but the first pub job I had when I was 18, and this is back when pubs were so popular, it'd be like four deep at the bar, you know, right? Yeah. Uh, four deep at the bar, smoke everywhere. <laughs> Everything yes you like I, I, I could like get four or five pints under at once somehow. I don't know how I did it now. But I had to I had to um take everybody's order in my head and then add it up in my head and then just type mm-hmm. the final number in and work out the change. Yeah. Do you remember? Yeah, I remember. It was quite cool. It was horrible. <laughs> what we ended up
1: doing at the at the zoo was that we actually did a little cheat sheet on the registers. So we uh-huh. had like two you know we, we had codes color yeah. codes for the different drinks and you know two two green tags you know meaning beer yeah you know adds up to eight um and then uh, so uh and then slash change from and we have these columns and change from 10 change from 20 change from 50. um yeah it works Super well, and really sped up the process. Yeah, because you know yeah. when you're under pressure like that, you know it's it's hard to yeah 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 stay yeah. on top of those numbers.
0: Wow, it was good though. It was a good mental athletics, I think. You know, and it's a good yeah. as well because when you work mm-hmm. in a pub, nobody gives a shit how clever you are or how educated you are. They just want to know that you can add it up and give back the change. That's it. Yeah, so, and work. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and, and and serve them a drink so um brilliant so what so when how did you get to japan what what come to japan i'm pretty sure we're close to that now we are getting very close to
1: that so i had been um there's a there's a there's a role called day managing a band um which is where you've got a really big band um or a band that's growing um and they've got management in another city so uh, i was looking after a band called george at the time and they had their main manager was in sydney really big um book uh management label called um one louder which is run by bill cullen who is a legend of australian music he used to manage or to manage um crowded house and um big names and lovely guy he and his wife ran this amazing business um so they asked me to manage the day-to-day stuff of the, the george stuff so george and come over to my house, my office, and we'd have daily meetings and um, go through the, the list. And anyway, um, so they released their debut album. They would released an EP, I think, and it had gone really well. So it, this album was highly anticipated. And sure enough, uh, it went triple platinum in the first month, I think. So we were touring extensively. Um, and it just, it was my first taste of real high end record label, promo, aggressive promo, aggressive radio, um, aggressive uh, newspaper, media. Um, and it was quite a shock because I'd, I'd come from that quite underground grassroots scene and I'd walked into this. We, we as a band, we'd all, they were old friends of mine, they used to play at the zoo all the time. Um, we just walked into this world that was quite another level and they'd signed a major label deal um, which field had negotiated for them and... So, we, you know, every show I'd have to deal with the record label. Oh, I was tour managing them as well. So every show I'd, we'd have to deal with the record label. They would either want to have some kind of event, um, you know, meet and greet or schmooze with the local label staff and local record shop owners. And um, it just got so smarmy and horrible. I just, it was really quite, ugh. I did not like it. I did not like that level of um at that this is in the 90s so things have changed massively since then but it was quite horrible um and also the band uh, the pressure was incredible i would never recommend instant fame on anyone in fact i wouldn't recommend fame i know on, i just when
0: say that i think of amy winehouse and just what an absolute beautiful unbelievable talent she was and how it looks like shit. She was treated.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was shocking. I mean, I remember one night, uh, one morning, going in to wake Katie up, one of the singers, because um, we we had to share rooms. Um, and she woke up and she was exhausted. And I said, "Come on, we've got to do this interview at ten. Let's do it." And she just burst into tears. Said, it's all happening too fast. I can't do this. And she was sobbing and
0: um,
1: was. And, you know, and, there were other times where I had to, you know, again, the emotional support, you know, sneak, sneak band members out of the back door of the venue, like through crowds of people to the car so they could go home and cry. And, um, it, it, was, it was pretty full on. Um, anyway, uh, I just reached a point where I couldn't do it anymore. And I, I went to a friend's wedding and uh, another friend of ours had... Flown in from Japan to surprise her at this wedding and um, she was teaching English in Japan in a little town called Fujiyoshara um, and I she love loved it. it. Her name was Mia. You you wouldn't have met her because she, she left before we all sort of became friends. But her name was Mia um, and she said you would love it, Martin. You know, all you need is a university degree and, you know, a sense of adventure and um, oh the final story for me was that the band had locked in a tour of europe and i'd always thought that my travel would come through music and then they realized that they just couldn't afford to take anyone else and i wouldn't be going with them which was quite a knife in the guts at i i felt at that time like i felt quite you know oh, after all i've done yeah i'm not going to get to go on this massive amazing adventure and, you know so, uh, yeah, um, so about two weeks after the wedding, Mia emails me, because by then email had started to happen, and said, Martin, my father's just been diagnosed with really aggressive cancer and he's going to die really soon. I need to come home. Um, I can give you this job if you want. Do you want it?
0: Okay. I think I might know Mia. Is she a blonde who lives in Brisbane? Yes, did you know, you do you know I've it? I've been to her house. Yeah, Near Campbell. <laughs> oh, like, well, well, that house was my was my house. Was yes. Our, yes. Okay. in? Okay. <laughs> well, there you go. I just so, I, I love to note things like this because there's just so many weird connections. But I know. I'm oh, still so Chris. Else, so, so. you know? Oh, that's right. There was that other girl. Yeah, yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. Yes. <laughs> Anywho, let's get back on track to you. But I just again, well, on these on these um conversations that I have with people. I just love kind of joining the dots backwards and making all these connections. And just, I hope that people take heart from these stories because you hear mm. like how everything makes you who, you who you, it sounds a bit cheesy, but it genuinely mean that everybody is made up of all these things that happen around you and just being kind of aware of them, even mm. backwards. Like I'm excited about the next 30 years. I've interviewed people who are in the seventies, you know, it's like, oh I wonder what's going to happen to me then because they will still be telling me and when I do this and I'm going to do this it's like oh goody
1: <laughs> yeah I, I think it's so true you know that, that consciousness around um who you're meeting and what your choices are around yeah, and the decisions you make around each single happening have a have a you know the butterfly effect you know
0: yeah they do and even even if you're not noting it it's nice to sit down sometimes and just go i wonder what is going to happen this week because you just don't know that bum, 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 that um you know the yeah. exactly what the ripple effect or the knock on effect yeah. or whatever it is so this is when you ended up moving to rural not rural but suburban slash rural japan where you yeah. it's it's called Yoshida. it's in the foothills yeah. of mount fuji so i yeah. guess you had an amazing view of mount fuji every day for the first yeah year. yeah, yeah.
1: I was there for 18 months. Um, became an English teacher. became an English teacher. <laughs> that's, a, that's a youth U-turn. <laughs> it was amazing. It was so wonderful. I was so excited. My dad was so excited for me. Um, my mum had died by this time. Um, I, he was thrilled for me. He knew how much I wanted to travel. Yeah. So um, I arrived uh, in December. So I arrived from Australian summer, hot, stinking Brisbane days to... Um, the coldest winter japan or tokyo had had in like t- 10 years yeah. um landed like uh, caught the the train into um i went straight into where did i go first
0: It must been shibuya was it shinjuku? shinjuku i would imagine to go out west it's probably shinjuku. yes yeah shinjuku yes yes yes, That's yes. One of you're right yeah yes um,
1: and just walked around there and saw these mounds of like dirty snow or um, slush. Actually, no, sorry. The dirty snow wasn't till I hit Fujiyoshila, but yeah. it had snowed and it was all damp and slushy, but I didn't, you couldn't see any white snow. Um, it was freezing. I had never been so cold in my life. You know, New Guinea and North Queensland and Brisbane, <laughs> freezing. Caught um, the bus. Uh, so I spent a day, a, a half a day walking around, um, but I was terrified. Because I had to get back to the bus station, I didn't want to miss the bus. I didn't know what I was doing. I had no Japanese, knew nothing. So I had um, my 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 contact, my new boss, who was a Canadian guy at the school, and he'd written out exactly what I had to say at the bus station in Japanese. And um, so I (laughs) was like reading this thing out, and I remember being terrified. And but the staff was so patient. And okay, okay. And gave me the ticket, and I jumped on this bus and went out to Fujiyoshida and got off the bus. And there were mounds of, you know, really tall piles of snow, and I had never seen snow before. So um, I got greeted by, um, oh, I've forgotten his name now. He was so lovely. My Canadian boss, um, who indulged me in, like, he let me touch the snow and play with it, and he was laughing at me. Um, <laughs> This is so in awe. Oh my God, it's snow. Anyway, um, yeah, and so I had my first white Christmas. It was literally just before Christmas. I think I landed on the 23rd and, um, and I went to their, uh, they had a big dinner for me. Um, all the foreign stuff and the Japanese stuff, we all came together and um, it was my big welcome dinner. And I walked home. I was That's walked home in the snow. Nice.
0: Yeah. It was beautiful. <laughs> I think one beautiful thing that people probably don't know if they don't live in Japan about Japan is that everything has ceremonies to start and finish. Everything does. Everything has ritual around it. And we talk a lot about this in the the podcast that released today with Gretchen about death and grief and Japan's brilliant at that as well. But there's always ceremony. There's this kind of social cohesion is really, really important here. But I just kind of I want to kind of jump forward into your Japan journey as well, because I think one of the things, one of the threads I can see running through this story is just how brilliant you are at creating community around you and creating these kind of satellites around you and and pulling people together. I think one of the words that springs to mind for you is that you're incredibly loyal. I think I am as well. Maybe that's why you and I've been friends for so long mm-hmm. as well. But um, um, we don't, but also don't take any shit. <laughs> it's like loyal, but there's a lot there's a limit <laughs> um so and um, and very long friendships as well so i uh, so you were there in do you were teaching english blah 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 then you end up move, moving into Tokyo right and that's when you really start drawing people together and i think again <laughs> there was this period in the early 2000s up to maybe 2000 when you left where there was just again this incredible group of really artistic fun wild and free people who got together I think you got involved in music again you started photography or you picked it back up again whatever that is and then you just started becoming more technical this was around the time when blogs took off and that is how so many of us my assistant for example um who has been working with me for five and a half years now she's not my assistant she's my COO she's my chief operating officer but you know No, none of my clients need to know that, right? They just need to know that she's the one who's assisting us. So, but um, you know, there was a load of us all have blogs. and We read each other's blogs. That's how I came to you. So again, there was this wellspring of fun, Deanne, Tracy Northcott, Deanne Love, who I must interview as well. Um, um, Lulu, Cherry Blossom Adventures. There was was a lot Mm -hmm. of us who all read each other's stuff. And that's how I came to you. So I'm just going to take a quick time out. Now, no, let me, why don't you tell me how you got up to Tokyo and how you started to create this community around you? And then I'll It had already it started.
1: Okay. Be- before I left with Yoshida, I was lured to Tokyo because okay. of the blogging. Um, I'd started blogging from the moment I arrived. You were I'd cool. Actually started, yeah, I actually started blogging before I arrived and I was documenting my arrival to, for my family. Yeah. Um, and because I had a lot of free time, you know, like I, I was uh, my nights were quite free. It was the first time I'd ever not really had bands to go out to. I mean, it, it was country Japan. There was not yes. not much do at night yes. except yes. sit in a little tiny izakaya and get drunk on sake, which. I'm no. not going to stop. No, but it, you can't do it every night. Um, so I'd go home and I'd blog, I'd, I, you know, write uh, my 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 day and I'd um, share my photographs because I bought a digital camera. Um, and I just got better and better at technology because I was researching and I was trying to make it, uh, the experience more user-friendly for my family. It was all about my family to start with and friend, my friends. But um, And then it just sort of, I don't know, people started finding me. I didn't... I, it was still very early days of Google, and I don't know, but I started finding people following me and leaving comments, and um, and then I started noticing other Japanese bloggers or Japan bloggers um, making comments and then sharing their link um, to their blog, and so we just started cross posting and becoming and commenting on each other's blogs and sharing our experiences, and then we ended up um, we had a little we had a couple of social days where we'd all meet up in Tokyo I'd catch the bus in and we'd all meet up and um you know it, it was so exciting to have these new friends that I felt like I knew really intimately because we all are writing so much um and I you know I got really bored in Fujiyoshida because it's beautiful but there's not nothing to do <laughs> so um I moved into to Kitazawa, into a big um I think called gaijin house which is we're a bunch of foreigners, house come, together. Where
0: foreigners come together, and Shimokitazawa is like, um, how would you describe it? It's a place that has secondhand stores that sell crochet cardigans. It's a, hip, <laughs>
1: it's a hipster. Yeah, it's very yeah, hipster. Yeah, that's lots right. that's hipster. lots of livens. yeah, it not exactly studenty but
0: more like lots of little record shops, lots of secondhand stores, lots of purple crochet. Yeah. That kind of vibe, right? <laughs> lots of cool bars. Yeah, and lots
1: and lots of live music. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, I ended up there, and um, so that t- it turned out that I, I didn't know anyone in that house when I moved in. Uh, well, I I didn't know who they were, but I realised that the guy in the hallway across the hallway from me was um, someone I knew, Tim from. He was a music person from Melbourne in Australia, and we'd um, he'd actually come to the zoo a few times, so. We, we were standing in the kitchen, like pointing at each other. Like, I know you. It took us ages to work it out. And we, yeah. we got there. And we still, to this day, you know, run into each other. He was tour manager Kurt Vile. And, and was, I was backstage at a festival not long ago. And <laughs> it's like, you again! <laughs> so, we, yeah, it's lovely. So, you know, those connections stay on. Yeah. Um, and, yeah, and, I, you know, so being in Shimokituzawa, I was right in town. Um, and yeah we just really we were all really excited to hang out with each other and experience like share our experiences with Japan because you know it's not it's not easy living in Japan um living in a different culture a non-english speaking culture where you have to learn you know this new quite complicated language and this uh very different culture and um know the challenges that that presents but also the joy that it brings um and the beauty i mean you know japan is simultaneously the ugliest and the most beautiful you know place on the planet the the gardens and the mountains and the you know beautiful historic houses and the tatami and the the ritual and you know the old temples and all that stuff i mean uh, to this day i kind of ache for it
0: yeah everybody
1: has that yeah but then i see images of (laughs) suburban tokyo and i'm reminded of how ugly it was
0: (laughs) anyway so yeah
1: i stayed in tokyo for seven years and that's where
0: you know my photography through my blog i mean everything happened because of the blog because of the blog so the blog was called frangipani that's been retired now, sadly, because it's a beautiful historical memoir. Um, but I've kept all nice. the writings. Okay. They're all
1: I've kept all the writings and
0: all Good. the photos in a folder, so I will, I will make a book of it one day. Oh, please do! I'll publish it. Um, I so this is how I met you, and I don't actually know the route that I took to get there. Um, to how I don't I, remember I don't know happened upon your blog but what the the everything happened in the comments then your blog was called frangipani.info maybe not even yeah .com. <laughs> such a ridiculous i mean i'm sure that the frangipani shop you know traders around the world hated me but well, <laughs> so anyway there so that that was that i didn't even know what frangipani was at the time i had to i don't think even think it was google at the time but something it and then um But the first ever post that I saw, and I don't know how I got to it, was um, uh, the account of your mum dying. There was this really, really beautiful, visceral, detailed account of your mum's death and um, your feelings around it and everything. And that was like, God, who's this woman? So then I started following your blog, which at the time for me meant logging into it every single time I wanted to, because I didn't know, like somebody was like, oh, you're on my RSS feed. And I was like, what is that? <laughs> yeah. no, I to yeah. this day, I don't know what that is. <laughs> so I just used to go and visit, like I just remember whose blogs I did, but also we would comment on each other's stuff a lot. And in fact, in my hall downstairs is a photograph that I won because I was the thousandth commenter on your blog. I remember. Is exactly. that how
1: we met? Maybe.
0: No, it wasn't. Um, no. Oh. No, 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 it wasn't because that was when you started using the Holger, and I already we already knew each other then. Okay. So. Um, uh, so there was that. I. Th- I think we met when I decided I wanted you to do my wedding, and I think we met when we started having the meetings for that. But again, I felt like I already knew you.
1: Because yeah.
0: we've been interacting, mm. so mine was called Zigzy in Tokyo and was far, far more amateur um, thing. There was a very funny. There was <laughs> there was a number of us. And now I now I I feel like I've lost my comedy edge these days. I'm going to be bringing it back in a bit more. I, I could be wrong. I'm pretty very strange. natural. <laughs> 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 Thank you. Um, so yeah, I think that needs to be revisited. But um, back to you. <laughs> um, what's the so? do you just want to tell us a little bit about that post and what is it that helped? What was it that made you like these days? And this, this word makes my skin crawl, which is unusual for a coach. Vulnerability is a fucking commodity these days. Excuse my language. Um, I hate it. Nobody gets to feast on my vulnerability, but to me, that's what really made me go, who is this? Because I just thought it was so well, beautifully written, such a great homage to your mom, but also not, it didn't spare you any details of the emphysema and the septicemia maybe and oh, uh, just the emphysema i'm sorry i don't i hope this doesn't trigger you uh, martin no, no, no okay. it's fine um, so um, well, it was a bit late if it did it? but still um <laughs> you knew it was coming so uh anyway so d- just to be clear listeners we did we did um, uh a line on this before we got on the call so um yeah so could you just want to tell us a bit little bit about that post and then actually let's just do both together and then when your dad died I, I remember you wrote a post and it was titled please hold on dad because he was already dying and you wanted to get back before he actually, so you could be, hold his hand as he slipped into um, into the, what whatever comes next. So do you just want to tell me about those and why you were so honest? Um,
1: I, I love visceral writing. I think uh, it's the most powerful kind of writing and it's also extremely pathetic. So my mum's post was, um, well, I had a friend at the time um, who was, uh, I'd been very close with, and she uh, she wanted to understand death and what it felt like. Um, she she found the whole thing a bit of a mystery and she wanted to know how I was, you know, what happened and how I was feeling. Um, and at the time that she asked me, I said, oh, it's not, I don't, mm, I don't know.
0: No, I can't talk about it.
1: No, no. So a little while later, um, I, she put the gem into or the germ into my um my head and I just sort of, you know, as I got back to sort of daily life, um um actually that was after dad, no, because mum already died. Um I just I just sort of let it sit in my head for a while and just remember just starting to remember really key things and so I just started putting them down in a um just a bit of an in note form and then i just sort of filled it out and um and as i wrote it was just so cathartic because so i was still you know when your parents die young you sort of you still you have a lot you want to say to them <laughs> okay. still there was so many unfinished conversations and i was angry at her for choosing to continue smoking even though she'd been told many 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 times since she was 20. To stop smoking but you know she that's who she was yeah one scene, that's her and she just couldn't that was she was so deeply ingrained in her perception of who she was yeah that she wouldn't let go of that so I was really angry at her um so um yeah so I just started writing and it just the words just tumbled out and it really didn't take long in the end with the final final blog post it was just took took about a day but it was all stuff i've been thinking about for a long time anyway so um and i published it and i sent it to her and i said this is your answer and um and then boom it exploded and i actually got contacted by a literary journal who published it um i I changed some of the names because it was still a bit fresh so i went under soon then um and yeah and then yeah with dad again um i think you know it, it's there's nothing worse than knowing that your dad's you know like, i just there was so much guilt around being in japan away from him um and when he was missing mum so much know he was, he was quite lonely and we'd talk by then skype was a thing so we would skype quite regularly um and I don't know, he, he ended up um, having a massive heart attack. Um, and yeah, so he held on. We, it, luckily, he'd scheduled an appointment with the doctor, a house visit call, and the doctor, uh, our family doctor, who was also mum's family doctor, came and um, in, the, in the morning after he'd had the heart attack. So he was, he was too far gone by then, but he wasn't dead yet. So they got into the hospital all the phone calls were made. My brother was living in North Queensland. I was in Tokyo. We coordinated so that we landed at the same time in, in Brisbane airport. And our cousin picked us up and drove us to or hospital where he was. And um, it's just really hard to have that kind of death when you're so far away. I remember getting news and I was in the kitchen and I was on the phone. And I remember just um, my, my legs just gave way. I'm, getting teary <laughs> um, and I just dropped I was just on the floor sobbing it was intense and oh, visceral and yeah you know, I don't know I just sort of I think it's writing about that kind of really visceral um, those feelings is really cathartic and good for you and it's, it's important I think for people to to know what those feelings are so well, to help arm them when they're, they're going through it or to understand what i'm going through or i don't know um but yeah i ended up posting i we got there we sat there with him for a while and i remember taking a picture of like i held his hand and i took a picture of our hands but his hand was all swollen because he was you know he was being pumped full of stuff and he, you know his heart wasn't working properly so you know so much fluid retention and um yeah so I posted that picture and I think I wrote um he waited with his bags packed that's right that's right <laughs> yeah.
0: he waited with
1: yeah. his bags packed yeah, yeah I was, it was like was that <laughs> <laughs> it was great so you know we, we yeah. got wheeled into a private room my brother again like bless him but he doesn't have the he can't. He couldn't be there for mum or for dad um, for those moments. So it was just me.
0: Usually, one person who can or can't. I remember my friend had a um, stillbirth, and it was her dad. He was the only one who could be with her, not her, not her mum. Uh, it, it happens quite often, Marty, and I think it's a real honour, actually. Yeah. Well, it was. You know, I
1: was holding both both hands, like both of their, I held both their hands yeah one hand of both of them (laughs) as they passed and you know we were playing music and so you know and the nurse the nurses are great in those situations so they'll get you to talk about them so you know you'll tell your their stories to the nurses and oh getting teary (laughs) anyway that was all years ago nurses are amazing mm, they are okay (laughs)
0: that was lovely thank you for sharing that and you know I I I can tell you now that I revisited those two blog posts over and over and over again it's not a one-stop shop that isn't because each time something else was delivered back and just the honesty of it was just very um I just think it's really it is important to have these stories it is important to have these stories held somewhere and I appreciate you for that actually Martine it was really um I don't I don't know if I have the right word for it I don't know if I have the right word I I
1: think people don't talk about death enough um there are certain topics that are a bit taboo and um people I remember when mum first died and I was still quite young um None of my friends, I didn't see a lot of my friends for almost a year because they just didn't know how to process it and how to handle it and how to be with me. And how to, like, they couldn't say anything about what had happened to me. They they knew that I'd gone through a significant change, but um, they didn't know how to deal with it. So I I, I think writing about that, that stuff is a really important part of the, um, you know, taking away some of the the fear and stigma around death it's it's a natural part of life it's we all
0: have to go through it and not everyone around us has to deal with it so and of course in japan we have open caskets and you go and put flowers around it and it just becomes very it just becomes much more part of the part of the journey if you like part of the story part of the stories um and i find that really useful in the the you know the number of you know funerals that i've been to here as well um great so let's so then you stay here for a while you become a photographer (laughs) you've got all these friends and then you move back to you, you make the decision your time here was done you need a really good reason to stay in japan otherwise two things can happen one what happened to me is i've built a life here and built a family here or two the other thing that happens is you wake up at 60 one day and go oh my god what's why am i still here <laughs> yeah interesting choice but what you because yeah. you stayed for seven years and, and there's nothing wrong with that if if, if people want to stay here until they're 80 you know that's completely fine but a lot of people do just make that mistake of being pulled into i wouldn't say it's only japan you get pulled into a certain situation and then suddenly you're like what happened there so um Yeah. So then you moved back. What was, what precipitated that? It was just your time. Uh, time
1: It
0: it was my time, but I was also getting quite sick
1: and, um, I didn't really know it at that time, but I was, uh, I developed an autoimmune disease or two autoimmune diseases. And, um, you know, there was so little known about that stuff at that time. Um, I didn't know what was going on. All I knew was I was just, feeling terrible. Um, I had a whole range of symptoms. I didn't realise at the time that, that they were symptoms of this disease. I just thought I, just thought I was really burnt out. Um, I thought Japan and just, or Tokyo, living in Tokyo, and the pace, the frenetic pace, and you know, I'd been involved in so many things and I wasn't living all that um, healthy life. I was doing a lot of drinking, going to bars and, um, yeah, not eating all that well and um, just getting more and more kind of depressed and, and anxious and couldn't handle the crowds anymore. I was just getting really angry at, like, uh, navigating Shibuya or even Kichijoji, where I was living at that time was just such a-
0: You were getting uh, angry, you were getting depressed, you were getting anxious, you weren't feeling well. What I'm hearing is, because if I remember the time that I knew you, you never really used to overdrink. And you always ate well and you're always really mindful of your body. So it sounds like it was disproportionate the feeling was disproportionate to the unhealthy lifestyle, but just enough that you would be maybe it's my unhealthy lifestyle or something like that. So so fast forward to when you got back to the to Australia. Hmm. What did what autoimmune diseases did you uncover? And then how did you start to work with them and deal with them?
1: Yeah. So I um Yeah, um, I decided to move to North Queensland because I was just so exhausted. I knew I just needed somewhere peaceful to go, and my brother. Yeah, and my brother was living in a beautiful part of the world, so um, moved in with him for a while and started a job. And I was sitting at the desk that day. You know, it had been happening a lot, but this particular day, I was particularly dizzy, and I actually said to my boss, "Oh my God, I can't, I can't stand up. I've got to lie down." Um, She me up into um, fortunately the nearest doctor surgery just happened to be a holistic surgery thank god because it saved my life um, and I went to see a doctor there called um, Dr Liz and she did a bunch of tests and she asked me a bunch of really weird questions that no doctor had ever asked me before and um, I was like oh this, this is really interesting I like you and she organized a couple of blood tests um, and then she said, the results will be back in two days. Um, call in then and we'll, we'll talk about it. And then two days came and I rang and they, she said, I've got one more test to run, so give me a call back in another two days. And, you know, the wait was excruciating. And um, she called me in to the surgery, um, which is never a good sign, and she said, okay, you have anti-parietal cells or parietal cell antibodies in your stomach, which means that you have um, pernicious anemia, which is a B12 disease. Um, And you are extremely deficient, not only in B12, but also iron. So you're very iron anemic. Um, And so I started having B12 shots pretty much that day. Um, And I still have to have B12 shots to this day. And it's, um, you know, uh, there are times when I have to have B12 daily, and there are times when I can get away with it weekly. Um, but at that time, the treatment was every three months after the initial range of loading doses. Um, anyway, track forward uh, about to about maybe five years ago. And um, I was just getting worse and worse. And the whole three months uh, injections weren't working for me. Um, I had definitely flared up. I had all sorts of stuff going on, IBS symptoms, um, gut health, like crazy anxiety. Like i would never been an anxious person before this, but um And so I started doing my own research um, and found out that actually parietal cell antibodies, the pernicious anemia part is actually the end stage of another disease called autoimmune gastritis, autoimmune atrophic gastritis, which is gut, uh, basically your stomach lining gets really damaged. Um, and that was a bit of a revelation. So I just kept on deep diving down into that world and um, started exploring the role of nutrition and supplements and the, the, you know food as medicine. And basically over that sort of the last five years I've come full circle and um, basically I, my symptoms are absolutely manageable. I'm perhaps the healthiest I've been in, in decades. Um, I eat a ridiculously healthy and clean diet. Um, And I am working on repairing my DNA because it's, I've found out that I've got a whole lot of DNA, um, damaged DNA polymorphisms or, you know, polymorphisms that are a little bit broken, which affect the, the effectiveness of the enzymes and the genes in you so for me i've got um polymorphisms on my transcobalamin one and two um how, uh, do, you that, how do you test for it um it's a dna <laughs> test so you can you can use any of those ancestry type tests yeah um and then down you can do a raw data download and then um upload it to another. So website. they're
0: actually looking at the DNA strands and looking what's what's missing yes. from
1: there. Okay. Um, well, what it is, is, um, well, let me finish. So it, we upload to Promethease, which is a DNA database, and it will uh, basically go through all that raw data and identify every single gene um, pairing that you've got and matches it to what it's supposed to be. So it gives you a certain number of point, like it, it's, it gives you a red, orange, green rating on each one and it, and it, um, it takes you to a page that shows you all of the, the problematic genes. Um, and then it gives you links to go to all these other DNA databases and, um, and then also, um, you know, this other hefty research around dna polymorphisms and um around b12 and anemia, and it turns out i've got the t- a number not just tcn1 and tcn2 but also my vitamin d receptors are damaged um and a couple of other um things connected to folic acid um are also um not good so i've, I've just been researching best ways to manage that and with supplements and diet and um yeah, so that led me to uh like when I got back, I was um working in North Queensland, doing event management and um and newspaper photography and wedding photography and loved all that, but again I got really bored because it's North Queensland and there's not a lot going on. And it's <laughs> very right wing and, and you know, drunken like alcohol is a huge problem up there. Um so I moved back to Brisbane, um, couldn't uh, just couldn't just didn't have the energy to start working again as a photographer because there were so many photographers already in Brisbane at that time um went back into the music industry um stayed in the music industry I mean I'm still really in it even now even though I'm at uni but um I just got bored again and <laughs> um I realized that there's just so little information in the medical world around uh autoimmune diseases and the role of nutrition as medicine. Um, They treat the symptoms, not the cause. They don't look at preventative, basic simple preventative um, strategies. Doctors only get to study nutrition in very tiny doses. So they, it's not even, they don't even consider it the vast majority of them. It's It's not on their list of their framework of things they have to ask and think about when they're in clinic talking to a patient. So, um, yeah, so I decided to – I already had one degree under my belt which basically gave me easy access to another degree um, because I completed that degree. So I was accepted into the University of Queensland two years ago to study a Bachelor of Health Science majoring in nutrition um, and I was planning to go on and be a dietitian. Um, But halfway through last year, my second year, um, I don't know, I just found – Public health, so interesting, all of yeah. the aspects around that. And it's, it's the work you do in public health is so much more far-reaching than just yeah. one-on-one work in clinic. Um, and you know, I already do a bit of clinic work with my friends. Like I'll look at their, their blood tests and I'll say to them, okay, you need to be doing this, this, and this. And I love that stuff. Um, but you've got to be careful because if you make a mistake, they're the ones that suffer. Yes, um, And I don't know, like you said, I'm a, I am a community builder and I think I, the, the role of community in public health really appeals to me, the whole um, and logistics and planning and, um, and helping people, like doing work that's really meaningful in all sorts of different communities and populations. So um, I'm extremely satisfied with the work I'm doing at uni. Uh, I love it. Um, I'm entering my last year. Um, And I'm probably going to go on and do a master's of public health nutrition um, next year, which will be 18 months. And that will take me through. um, Yeah. So I will be, when I graduate from my master's, I will be 55.
0: (laughs) So inspiring, Martine. So inspiring because like, um, I have an itch to scratch around that as well. I was for psychotherapy actually i'm really interested in psychotherapy and but like i i got to the point where it's like well i'm 50 this year and i thought do i really want to do a three-year degree now (laughs) but listening to you it's like well it's just a choice it's not that you don't do it or you can't do it you Mm. can find a way if you want to but the way that i do things and this is the way that i coach as well it's like okay what's the next step What's the next step what's the next step what's the next step because doing a degree so if the next so I, I went on research 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 what's the next step and it was like send us an extended essay of x words um, citing all your research and I was like no <laughs> that's not gonna do it so <laughs> what I'm gonna do is I'll I'll probably you know, certify to a higher level in the stuff that I'm doing at the moment and maybe study counselling instead. So that'll give me the same, not the same, but some some other different kind of rigour there as well. Or maybe not. But I, I also spoke to my friend who's a psychotherapist, but it's really brilliant to hear you saying that. And again, for anybody who's listening, it's like you're just hearing two different sides of this, two people who are thinking about doing something at the age of 50. As you've heard from Martine's interview, she's brilliant at just getting the process work done. Really brilliant. I'm probably more like one of her errant band members (laughs) who needs a bit more support on that. So I just made the decision, actually, that's a brilliant gatekeeper, making somebody write a a, a university level essay, just even to get an email back from them, not even to inquire. That's the inquiry. I love that. I love a good gatekeeping technique or that kind of thing. Um, I'll tell you what's
1: really interesting Sarah is um, nutritional psychology is um, a huge growing field and the the role of um, nutrition in um, in all sorts of mental health disorders and in fact the role of B12 in uh, schizophrenia and really crazy bipolar um, a lot of well the more uh, cutting-edge mental health clinics will now immediately do blood tests and check the B12 and folate status of patients and inject them Im- immediately um if they're down and that will actually i mean but their behavior modifies almost immediately so where's all
0: this in terms of so it's interesting to hear you talking about public health and like that kind of that's a, it to me i can i can really see how that's a really important part of the puzzle for you because we've already talked about that kind of social awareness that activism awareness that kind of more and if, if we're not careful when we get into these like nutrition as wellness and we can become a little bit ableist around stuff like that if we're not very careful but I think adding that public health piece in there can really help see the bigger picture of what the societal inherent societal needs are as well so I'm just wondering where like obviously this is a, a science it's a BSC it's a science-based uh, a science-based thing but where is where is the whole big picture of that public health times doctors times the research science you know the scientific research where's all that sitting in this area at the moment because it's super important
1: um what do you mean like uh, uh, it's 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 a massive yeah field. i'm not, i'm not clear on what what direction do you
0: think it's going in the the kind of um what direction do you think this is going in the nutrition, the food as wellness? What How does that fit in with the public health backdrop?
1: Okay, so I think the big thing is trying to educate people into the difference between health span and lifespan. So um, in Japan, I remember being astonished. I'd be on bushwalks, going up really steep hills um, and have these little tiny 80 year old women running past me and climbing up these really steep mountains without, you know, Caring the world, and we'd all be,
0: um,
1: and so that's where I was first introduced the idea of health span because it immediately made me think of my parents and how sick they were for so long, and, and you see it all the time. You know, the more um, obese and um, yeah, obesity and diabetes and um, heart disease are the biggest killers in the Western world and and in the developing world it's becoming. Um, so, trying to educate people around. You know, the importance of changing their their lifestyle and you know, all the research that supports that to to show um you know if you just eat a few more vegetables and do a little bit more exercise like 30 minutes of exercise a day instead of you know you might still die at the age of 80 but you will be really healthy until you're 75 and it'll only be five years that you're, you're sick or you know unable to yeah, how do you to...
0: see that kind of moving forward martine in the against the backdrop of like the whole span of public health like somewhere like australia or the uk has a really wide span of poverty it's yes yeah. uh, it's you know, absolutely like the industry as well is, is is a bit dodgy in many ways as oh, well. Shocking. it's
1: shocking um yeah i I I think, interestingly, the Trump effect has probably actually been a beneficial thing, and I'm noticing there's a couple of the Trump effect, so the fake news effect, so the whole, the conspiritualist tag, which has come up with all of the Trump, the QAnon people. It's, uh, I see this chatter all the time across social media talking about um, fake news, uh, do your research, blah, 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 and now I see that the voting companies, uh, sorry, the voting machine companies, are suing all of these people for falsely uh, misrepresenting them. And I think that 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 I don't. There, there is definitely um, a turning of the tide against okay. um, yes. fake news, and that people are realizing that the stuff they're reading on social media is not is not to be trusted
0: Interesting. and
1: to do their own research. I see it now, even with some of the loudest people on my social media feeds, the ones that were very, you know, <laughs> 5G and um, the re- great reset, I can see they're toning down and they're starting to speak with a bit more like, oh, shit, yeah, they right. are wow. Um, so it's definitely a changing the tide and I want you to really think about tobacco and cigarettes and how Do you remember when we were growing up cigarettes were everywhere? Smoking was everywhere. It was hugely You know, everyone did it um, It took this relentless campaign it took it was a gradual change. It took 20 30 40 50 years but you know here in Australia it's now achieved, it's been so successful that um, smoking has been dropped down to something like, there's only about 15% of the population that smoke now. Mm-hmm. And the, the diseases associated with that have, um, well, they've changed quite a bit as well. You know, it's taken a long time, but the um, you've got to gen- basically sort of nudge people's belief systems. Um, and it's gotta be done in a really effective, um, authentic, way through, um, what's the word, Um, you know, subjective norms, like getting, like, educating leaders, um, community leaders, to talk about the issues at hand, um, and gently expanding people's mind and consciousness around these concepts of Processed food and how that it's not food at all; it's poison. I mean, even even alcohol really is just straight poison.
0: And there's um, also like this, that that sense of yeah. I, I'm I'm, love, I'm so happy you mentioned the conspirituality world there as well because one of my favourite podcasts is Conspiracy Pod, which is absolutely brilliant. And um, and what they're always talking about because they're really really strong public health active and uh, um, advocates as well is. The degree of compassion that you have to have for people, so even the people who were like the QAnoners, the Five Gs, if they're suddenly going, oh, it's like having to decompress from a cult to some degree, and in yeah. that case, that you have to meet them with loving kindness and no, told you so, or anything like that, because it's 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 shocking. It, it's mm-hmm. a, it's a terrible, terrible kind of withdrawal, and the same when it comes to these issues of public health and and nutrition and so on there's, as, as as I'm sure you know I'm preaching to the choir here but like there's so many layers of what what's going on there um and how to incorporate these how to call people oh, not call people in but like how to involve people like you said communities without shaming them without shaming mm-hmm. them for their cigarette habit without shaming them for their alcohol like mm-hmm. enjoyment without shaming them for having lived off incredibly cheap food that's in the supermarket, that's the only supermarket for, you know, 50 miles around them or whatever it is, or whatever other things have meant that those people have come to that point. It's, it's, this is all new to me actually, because you know, I, it's easy for me to be like, well, you know, you've got type two diabetes. Shog Well, surprise. But actually then I realized that's me being a narcissistic asshole. And that's and that's not that's actually nothing to do with public health whatsoever. That's to do with me feeling great and shaming somebody else, and yeah. I feel terribly sorry for that because I did it for many, many, many years. So uh, it's really interesting to hear you kind of marrying these kind of newer ideas um, with the with the public health and with the BSC and with the nutrition, and how that kind of connects back to the this Trump era of review, it's like, it's almost like a a new set of, a new set of data is coming out, emerging out of this fake news stuff, which is helping people to research more, um, and check what's going on. I think a return
1: to constructive, um, you know, uh, critical thinking. I think a lot of people just forgot how to think critically when they were looking at documentation. Um, And I can see that there's been a definite reversal there you can see it in all of the comment threads under you know the guardian will print an article or the, the new york times and you'll see oh god
0: you go to the discourse. comments i love that's i love me needing so to, to like <laughs> right.
1: you've got it for me, as, as approaching it from a public health, I've got to understand that. I understand. I see. That's fascinating yeah. to me. But you yeah. see <laughs> that there is definitely a, a lot more people arguing. You cannot believe, you know, oh, yeah, I can believe that because I read it on the internet, you know, ha-ha. Um, so there is definitely a switch. So, you know, the whole thing around, um, you know, the um, misinformation around diet and nutrition and wellness uh, Will start to die. I mean, here in Australia, we've got Pete Evans, who's this absolute nut. Um, I, I actually loved him for initially when he first started. Um, I've heard of him. Yeah, he was great at the beginning. He he was really genuinely interested in health and nutrition, and then all of a sudden he just went down this weird bloody and and Q-and-on oh my god. god. Yeah. Well, yeah. not just Q and on, yeah. but weird health stuff as well, and like yeah. and you know <laughs> trying to feed babies a keto diet, and like oh god, oh yeah um yeah radical
0: yeah. Yeah, dang, dangerous really yeah dangerous. that's that's the thing isn't it Martine it's like fine if you want to grab a crystal and you know drink some green juice excellence but when it becomes it, it, it turns into some if there's a tipping point something happened somewhere along the line where this tipping yes. point came and it became very sinister and and then you then you find that people are contributing to certain places and all this this other kind of stuff and you're like oh my god this is this is actually the Reich this is weird you know something like that it's very very strange and and then from somebody like me who has a business like I do I'm like oh my god where am I peddling this nonsense and then I get my like you know I get my nearest and dearest clients and stuff in to be like okay I need you to moderate me and make sure that I'm kind of keeping myself up to date across the board and 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 make sure that I'm aligned in the places that make sense and that have that that kind of that touch on the science that touch on the public health that touch on the psychology that touch on the kind of quite the indigenous magical side of things as well in a respectful way, but not in that kind of appropriated weird way that whatever's going on with Pete Evans and his gang uh is is, is going on. Um allegedly sorry, I don't want to maybe we should beep out his name.
1: <laughs> I don't
0: want uh, to right. it's
1: he's a commonly uh, yeah, well, and, and what what allegedly other, allegedly get to is that he's actually um he has he's almost been destroyed. He's lost all of his book contracts. No one stocks his stuff anymore. Um, he was kicked off all social medias, although he's got, he's on some of those more underground weird ones and he's got his own website chat board as well. Um, so he's, you know, he's lost, his audience, people are dropping off like flies. So, um, I think what happened in America, you know, around the insurrection and, um, all that will have a flow-on effect in terms of um, information and control and understanding, uh, like critical thinking. Um, and I think it's actually a really exciting. Between COVID and the Trump effect, I I can see really exciting societal changes happening globally. At least I hope globally for a better world. I'm, I'm, I'm really positive that we're moving. I, in the right I love
0: that. Situation. I mean, it's it's like a really nice place to start landing this conversation because, like, now I can uh, like, wh- where did so? Do you know what you're going to do afterwards? You said you didn't want to go into like having a nutrition practice now, but yeah. What do you think so you I won't like have a spray governments. Yeah.
1: I th- well, there's oh god, because it's <laughs> such a broad subject that that I'm studying and my, and because of my own background skills. Look, it could be anything from health advisor in government, so policy advisor, to working on the WHO, like, I don't know, helping people in Fiji set up some kind of health program or health communication because my skills in film and video and photography, Um, a lot of the misinformation out there about health has been from people reading the research and misunderstanding it and misrepresenting it. So there's a really strong need for interpreters of research to be able to communicate what's the the findings in a layman's, you know, layman's terms. So, you know, documentary maker or um, just working for some kind of health organisation that educates about health.
0: Um, if you not be wanting to do that in Aussie communities, then you'd be, you'd be looking to go, you, have you got the travel itch again? Um, I will always have the travel itch, but
1: um, it's been tempered by always wanting to come back to Brisbane because this is, when I came back to Brisbane after living away for like 10 years, so I was in Japan and then in North Queensland, uh, I I realised um, the Aboriginal um part of the Aboriginal health structure is this concept of your land, your, your home. So uh, being on country, they call it. So you go home to your country and that just means your area. Yeah. Um, And it's where your roots are and coming back to Brisbane after being away for 10 years, it was, I had the most uh, beautiful feeling of coming home and being on country and I became myself again in here. This is, I I felt, I feel like I really went off the rails in Japan and in North Queensland because I was so sick. It was the illness um, more than anything. Um, And coming back here and fixing my health and reconnecting with my, my, my living family, apart from my brother and my dearest friends. um, And, you know, being able to walk down some street in Brisbane and, and be able to tell you stories about that street from your personal history, and to me, that's being on country, and I really need that. Um, I've realised, and you know, being here in this um, in this house, you know, six years now, I've been here, and um, it just I have put down my roots, and I uh, I think it's really <laughs> important.
0: So it sounds like you, you, that's the place where you can influence. That's the place where you can bring your health and nutrition and public health notions out into the, ripple out into the Brisbane community.
1: Yeah, but, but I do also see myself doing short-term contracts in international areas, um, or even working on, a, on an international level, but from Brisbane.
0: Uh, WHO or something like that, or? Yeah. 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 That's my vision. Interesting. All right then, Martin. So, what would be your parting words to our listeners then? Any wisdom or what's the what's your biggest lesson over the years? Check your B12 um,
1: <laughs> That it's never too late to start again.
0: Ooh, love it! I've just got goosebumps. Hmm.
1: And like you know, at age fifty, you've still got thirty or forty years ahead of you. And true.
0: God damn it! There's so much you can do. I know, and you think about the the, the amount of years you waste <laughs> in the in the previous ones. It's not exactly like they were juicy. Like, no, I'm not talking about you. I mean, anybody. People waste years and years and years. I mean, no years ever wasted, obviously, but it's like, <laughs> yeah,
1: doing the wrong thing or being unsatisfied. Oh, being so,
0: unsatisfied yeah. or making it excuses or whatever it is or having reasons or you know all that stuff or just just staying stuck it's it's yeah I mean it's easy to say from the vantage point of being in your 50s isn't it but oh no it isn't You, you have to consciously make these choices I suppose that's where I that's what I think and also within the consciousness or the consciousness or the psychological levels that we have you know so I say Get your B12 checked, have an injection, and then go see a psychotherapist and then get a coach once that's sorted out. <laughs> oh, if only it was that easy. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it's a good
0: start. It's a good start. It's a good start. Definitely, definitely rocking the nutrition. Yeah, rocking the nutrition, definitely. And that I, a special I think, phrase it is based on all this stuff we've just been talking about, Martin and we'll we'll close out after this is I'm a dealer, not a healer. I don't heal shit like I don't, <laughs> no. I'm i not Jesus Christ and even there's questions there I have questions <laughs> you know um what I do is I, I help people deal with things yeah I get, make people deal with things and if I can't deal with it if it's outside if it's at the edge of my capabilities then I will I've got a I've got a nice psychotherapist I can send you over to she's great you know it's like um and then she'll help you deal with things as well <laughs> it's just uh yeah and then also all this other stuff as well but that's my latest one I'm a dealer not a healer which is a bit of a winky winky thing as well isn't it I, I
1: like it yeah it's definitely that. Not a yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yeah Martine it's been absolutely brilliant listen I I didn't know that it was going to go into this really interesting and rich conversation about conspirituality and uh, unethical <laughs> stuff, uh, unethical diet stuff, and um, nutrition and science. It's like, uh, for all the way through from like death and grief and writing and uh, Japan, Papua New Guinea. I mean, it's just rather, it's it's rather amazing this 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 journey that we've just been on. And uh, like you said, it's never too late to start again. I just love that. I really really think it's 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 it, it could be a cliche but it's a cliche that's being lived out by both of us and and by many 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 people around the world so thank you so much there are many many ways to lead a life and everybody has stories and i'm so so grateful for uh, Martine sharing her so so enthusiastically today thank you my dear thank you my darling we had a great (laughs) meal delicious food by the way (laughs) okay let's leave it there all right thank you so much for listening to this latest legend on the sarah ferruya legends podcast hop over to sarahferruya.com where you can find the full complement of uh, legends interviews and conversations also you can like and subscribe over on itunes or wherever you find your podcasts i absolutely love these interviews and these conversations i have with these people i don't care about subscribers if i'm absolutely honest it just helps to get more people over to listen to these fantastic people. I cannot wait for my next interview. I really hope you can get stuck in and find some juice and some delightful little nugget of knowledge or encouragement from these that will help you to create your story and to take your story forward and to weave and dream up and high dream your own story, buoyed up by the stories of these people. I would call them ordinary. They're not but these people, these beautiful legends who I've selected to help you on your way and to help me on my way. So please enjoy, share, subscribe. My Facebook page is Sarah Furuya Coaching. My Instagram page is at Sarah Furuya Coaching too. So get into it. Thanks. Bye.